Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. From Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 31, and on, is on page 749 of the church Bibles. So I'll give you a second to find that. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on, on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people uh, one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep uh, on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on, on his right, Come, you who are blessed, blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and he gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and he gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and he invited me in. I needed clothes and he clothed me. I was ill and he looked after me. I was in prison and he came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you ill or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you are cursed into the internal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and he gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and he gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or needing clothes, or ill, or in prison, and did not help you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did, uh, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to internal punishment, but the righteous to internal life. So let's pray for Steve as he uh, comes to speak to us. So yeah, thank you God for your word. Pray for Steve now as he comes up just to speak to us. Lord, give us ears to listen, give us hearts to receive, Lord. Thank you God for your word that is living, active, Lord. And this, Yes, encourage and challenge us now as Steve speaks to us today. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. It's been said that the gospel disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. If there was ever a parable to disturb the comfortable but comfort the disturbed, it is the sheep and the goats. It's hard hitting. It's hard for me to share some of the things that's going to be shared in this parable and it's hard probably for you to hear some of them, but we need to face them. It's the teaching of Jesus. And actually, strictly speaking, it's not a parable. A parable is a, a, a sort of story related to real life that has a spiritual meaning. This is not really a story with a, with a spiritual meaning. This is a judgment scene. What is going to happen at the end of time? What's it going to look like? This is the, the fifth of four parables we've looked at in Matthew 24 and 25. And all the other ones have been about waiting for the return of a king. And we need to be ready as we wait, and we need to wait well. So we've learned that we must be alert as we wait. We must be wise as we wait. We must be prepared as we wait. We must be courageous as we wait. But here, the waiting is over. The king has returned. And judgment of all history, of all nations, and all people is enacted. So what will the final judgment of all humanity be like? Well, Jesus tells us it's about a great divorce, a separation. There are those on the right, the sheep, and there are those on the left, the goats. At the final judgment, there will be 
an awful divide. Now, before I get into the story, let me answer a common objection that modern Westerners often have when we hear Jesus is teaching about a great divide and an irrevocable, I can never get that, I couldn't get that word this morning, irrevocable separation of all humanity. People say, well, we're modern now, Steve. We're tolerant people. We've got past like this, you're right and you're wrong. We're all, we're all accepted. We're all equal. We're, you know, they're, they're, we, we no longer live in that sort of judging other people age. You know, Jesus is out of date. We're tolerant people. In the end, everyone's going to be saved. There's not two destinies. There's, you know, two destinies. There's just one. And live your life the way you want to. And we shouldn't be making those objective moral truth claims about right and wrong and who is right and who is wrong. That's kind of what the media tells us. That's what popular culture tells us. But it's not really fair to say that for two reasons. Firstly, everyone is being exclusive. Every person who claims to be tolerant ends up excluding people that don't agree with them. For example, the tolerant person becomes very intolerant to people who believe Jesus is teaching about heaven and hell from Matthew chapter 25. The accepting people condemn Silence, cancel, reject people who believe some of these exclusive things. They're just as exclusive. And secondly, everyone is making objective truth claims. Everyone believes right now there are people in the world who are not living just in a way that you personally disagree with in a kind of preference sense, personal choice, but you think are morally doing something wrong that they should stop doing. Just go on Twitter and see lots of moral objective truth claims and moral outrage as people share. Think about the political commentary around the Qatar World Cup. Different nations with different views on things and everyone said, they're right, they're wrong. We all are being exclusive. We're all making objective truth claims about what is right and wrong and who is right and wrong. So here's my question. If we're all excuse, exclusive, no one can avoid that. If we're all making moral Objective truth claims, no one can avoid that. So if in one sense we are all narrow-minded at some point, why would we not listen to who Jesus says is in and out and what Jesus says is right and wrong? As far as I can understand, he was the most kind, gracious, and loving man that ever walked planet Earth. He accepted everyone, he welcomed everyone, he despised no one. His moral teaching on the, the Sermon on the Mount has never been surpassed. And in the end, instead of destroying his enemies who falsely accused him, he forgave them as they destroyed him. If anyone in history deserves to be listened to about what the final judgment of humanity will be like, I think it's Jesus. Or are you more morally superior to him and wiser than him? So let's consider what he says about the final judgment in four acts. Acts one, the glorious judge makes a final separation when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Matthew is picking, or Jesus is picking up Old Testament passages, but particularly one famous one, Daniel seven. He's, Daniel in his vision says, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. 
His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Daniel has a vision of the final judgment. Thrones are set in place. Nations are being gathered. The glorious ancient of days in his blazing glory is at the center. All humanity is there, 10,000 times 10,000. The court is seated and everyone has a book. And everyone's book is opened. It's judgment day. We're being called to account before the judge of the earth. And Daniel's vision carries on. In my vision, I looked And there before me was one who looked like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, one that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Did you see the name of the one who comes on the cloud of heaven? Did you see the name of the one who's given the moment to be the judge of all the earth? The one who in the end all nations will worship, who has final authority? His name is the Son of Man. Jesus takes his name upon himself and says, when I return as the Son of Man in glory, as king with the angels, I will sit on a glorious throne. People who say that Jesus is just a good moral teacher have not understood the good moral teachers who are Jewish and know the Old Testament like the back of their hands. No good moral teacher goes around calling himself the Son of Man because it's a divine title for the final judge of all the earth. So when Jesus comes, he says he's going to make a final separation. Verse 32, all nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. He'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. A Palestinian shepherd would have the sheep and the goats in the daytime all together, mingling. But at night, the sheep could keep warm with their wool, their coat of wool. But you'd have to then separate the sheep out and separate the goats out so the goats could be brought inside to keep warm at night. So now, in all history, the sheep and the goat are all mingled, and we're not quite sure who's who. But on the final day, they will be separated out by the judge of all the earth. All the distinctions that separated us in this life, the rich and the poor, the educated and the non-educated, the whites and the black and this and the that, and all the things that... No, there will only be one final distinction, and it'll be whether you're a sheep or whether you're a goat. So Acts 1, the glorious judge makes a final separation. Act two, the righteous will inherit an eternal kingdom. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So there's a blessing, there's an inheritance, and there's an eternal kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in. I, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The king says, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The sheep are deemed righteous for the way they treated 
the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, verse 40. Whenever they cared for the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, and sick person that was a least brother or sister of Jesus, they were caring for Jesus. They thought they were just caring for someone in need, but they were actually caring for the King of Kings, who is hidden within that person. And notice the surprise. When did we see you? There's a delightful self-forgetfulness in their good deeds. They had not been doing these wonderful acts of kindness as a way to impress Jesus. It was just as an act of love. There was nothing meritorious in their actions. They're just acting in love. And although these acts of kindness are wonderful, they are not impressive, flashy, or miraculous. They are mundane and basic. They are behind the scenes and unnoticed. As one preacher of the early church, John Chrysostom, said, we do not hear, I was sick and you healed me. I was in prison and you liberated me. No, these are little ministries. They are modest. They are not solving the problem. Rather, they are acts of love for those caught in the problem. They're not impressive and the healing and the prophecies and the demon exercises of Matthew 7, but who didn't know God? They are small, basic visitors and carers, feeding ministries, sheltering ministries, visitation ministries. These receive the highest honors in Jesus' valedictory. It is these ministries that reveal the self-forgetful, self-effacing love. There is no virtue signaling here. These people are surprised at the honor. <gasps> On judgment day, I was fee- and I'm, I'm given the great honor. They were quietly doing what they thought needed to be done. Whatever we call these six things Jesus mentioned, they are within reach of each of us. Food, drink, a visitation, clothes, some care. None of us can say these things were too hard to do when judgment day comes. And notice, this isn't just handouts. This isn't just giving some money and resources and staying at a distance. This is about building relationships, visiting in prison, inviting them into your home, caring for a sick person. This is about dignity and worth of the people you care for. That's what we try to do at our banquet. Get to know their names, understand their stories, find out if they have kids. Listen to them as we have the privilege of providing for them. Act one. The glorious judge makes a final separation. Act two, the righteous will inherit an eternal kingdom. Act three, the cursed will depart to eternal fire. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Instead of blessing, there's a curse. Instead of an inheritance, there is just company with the devil and his angels. Instead of an eternal kingdom, there's eternal fire. And even if that fire is metaphorical, The metaphor represents something worse. But why? Well, it's the same in reverse. Verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer the king. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. The goats are eternally cursed for the way they treated the least of these. Verse 45. 
As we've just said, none of the six things Jesus mentioned are beyond any of our reach. We can all feed. We can all give water. We can all invite a stranger. We can all clothe a naked person. We can all care for a sick. We can all visit someone in prison. Yet these people turned a blind eye to these basic needs and these desperate people. And in turning a blind eye, they revealed a lack of love, not just for the person, but for the king who is hidden within the person they ignored. And notice one final thing here. The final and eternal judgment here is not based on sins of commission, but sins of omission. Sins of commission, things we actively do that are wrong. Sins of omission, things we should have done that we didn't. Acts of love that we ignored. Just as the previous parables of Jesus that Matthew took us through condemn those who do not do anything, whether a lack of preparedness, the ten virgins, or fear, the bags of gold. So here Jesus condemns those that ignore the plight of the needy that's in front of them. And notice again the surprise of these people. When did we see you? Just as there was a delightful, self-forgetful, non-meritorious surprise in the righteous who didn't realize their self-sacrificial acts of kindness were so significant to the king. So there was a meritorious assumption from the wicked that they'd lived a good life and they had no opportunity. And like the rich man and Lazarus of Luke 16, one lived in luxury and failed to ignore the beggar at his door. Failures of love to the needs of those in front of you. And so the glorious judge makes a final separation. The righteous inherit an eternal kingdom. The cursed are departed to eternal fire. So act four, there is a great divorce then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So here's the key question to the interpretation of this judgment scene. Who are the least of these brothers and sisters of mine? Who are the least of these? If our eternal destiny is bound up in how we treat these people, we better know who they are. And there's two options. The popular option that I've always read this parable to mean is it's the world's poor. That the judgment scene from Jesus is aimed at the church, like the previous four parables, who are not to rest on their laurels and live comfortable lives, knowing that they are guaranteed eternal bliss, whilst the world's poor suffer great hardship and injustice. In other words, eternal salvation is based on that famous phrase, faith expressing itself through love. Similar to what Matthew said last week, you might believe Jesus is Lord, but does your belief in Jesus is Lord lead you to care for the poor? If this interpretation is correct, then it's a warning all of us, not just to focus on the sins of commission, what have I done that is wrong? But sins of omission, what are the acts of love that I failed to do? We are to use our resources in response to our saving faith, as we, as we realize we are saved by faith and have, have received this kingdom, we then use all our resources to do as much good to the least of these. Not just giving handouts, but getting to know them, inviting them in, treating them with dignity and respect. We cannot live indulgent lives and fail to meet the practical needs of those around us. That's interpretation one. I'm going to argue that actually I think option two is what Jesus is getting at. 
that the least of these are poor gospel workers and Christians. This is well, less well known, but actually church history, this has been the more common interpretation. Why? Well, first of all, notice verse 40, who are they? Jesus' brothers and sisters. Who are Jesus' brothers and sisters? Well, it's you and me. It's the church. Followers of Jesus. So he's our elder brother. We have a, the same heavenly father. We're part of one big family. We all become the children of our father and Jesus is our big brother. Or, or notice how Jesus says, whatever you did for them, you did for me. But that's how Jesus talks about his body, the church. Whatever you did for the... When Paul is on the road to Damascus, Saul became Paul. And he's going to persecute who? The church. Acts chapter 9. And Jesus accosts him, doesn't he, on the, on, the, on, the, on the Damascus road. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Hidden within my church. Saul was going to go and kill Christians, but Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Whatever you're doing to them, you're doing to me. And most importantly, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples in Matthew 10, this is all one gospel, Matthew has a, a gospel that is it's coherent, it holds together. At the end of Matthew 10, as he sends out the 12 disciples, what does he say? Anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. If you receive a disciple who's carrying the message of the gospel, you receive Christ into your life. So verse 42, right at the end of Matthew 10, if anyone gives even, what? A cup of cold water. To who? One of these little ones, the disciples, who is my disciple. Truly I tell you, that person will never lose their reward. What you did for the little ones when you gave them water gained you a great reward from the king. And how does Jesus say these 12 disciples are going to be cared for as they go out into the world to do their mission? He says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt for sandals or staff for the work who is worth his keep. You will be provided for by the people who receive you and your message. When you don't have food, they will feed you. When you don't have clothes, they will clothe you. When you are thirsty, they will give you a cup of water. When you need shelter, they'll welcome you in. And when you end up where for preaching my message? In prison. They will come and visit you and comfort you in your task to take the gospel to the nations. In fact, Jesus promises him in Matthew 10, persecution, hatred, betrayal of family, enmity in the closest earthly relationships, flogging, imprisonment, expulsion from the synagogue, and death. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. Well, who's going to care for the sheep? The other sheep. Because they're in the same family. They're brothers and sisters of Jesus. And as you receive the message and you become a brother or sister, you take them in and you provide their basic need. In other words, eternal salvation is based on receiving the gospel message and caring for gospel workers. If a Christian comes to you and tells you the gospel and you're willing to receive the message and receive the Christian as a brother or sister in Christ, you are actually receiving the King. If a Christian comes to you and tells you the gospel, you reject the message, well, yeah. What did he say? You brush, brush the dust, move on, because they're rejecting me. So the nations will be judged. At the end of history, 
according to how they responded to the gospel that the gospel messengers brought them and how they cared for those poor gospel messengers who live lives of vulnerability to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. The king judges the nation based on their response to his ambassadors who have the message that he's given them and who chose a life of vulnerability to bring them the message. If this interpretation is correct, salvation comes not so much from acts of love that evidence our faith, but rather from responding to disciples who bring a message and loving the disciples themselves. And by the way, this means something for us all who claim to be followers of Christ here. If we're to be successful in our evangelistic efforts to see the nations won for Christ, we must be willing to embrace poverty and suffering. So, I'm persuaded by that interpretation. What's the application? Threefold for us as a church. We must love brothers and sisters close to us and far away who are in need. That's one of the applications. Practical ways of loving brothers and sisters. By our love will all the world know we are we're his disciples. In Jesus' mind, there is no such disciple who says, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. The church is his body. And as you care and nourish for the church, you are caring and nourishing for Jesus. So to be a disciple of Jesus, is not just, I love Jesus, but I don't love the... You love Jesus by loving the church. He's hidden himself. The king comes disguised within the little poor brothers and sisters alongside you. So we must love brothers and sisters close to home and far away who are poor and needy. The early church were famous for doing this, weren't they? Secondly, we must be willing to embrace vulnerability for the sake of evangelizing the nations. If we really take our role seriously as Christ's ambassadors, most often the path before us will not be comfort, career progression, abundant life experiences, and wealth. We must embrace vulnerability for the sake of evangelizing the nations. I was just reading this book on Friday morning. This passage should give us an urgency to our evangelism. Jack Miller, who's a great influence on many people, including Tim Keller that some of you will know, wrote some letters to missionaries in Uganda and Ireland in the 80s and 90s. And then he wrote a little thing to the American church who had got compromised and had lost their urgency and just about therapeutic needs. What do I need is why I go to church. And he writes a, a little thing at the end of his book that I just read. And uh, he, he says he, we must seek personal, uh, we must stop seeking personal fulfillment over seeking to obey Jesus' command in the Great Commission. And he says for us this means we must throw away our lives for Jesus as we take the gospel to the last this intelligent carelessness is our true security. Anything less is dangerous compromise. We who once were enemies have been justified by faith. We must not fall asleep in self-preoccupation and comfort zones. Instead, justification is meant to release us for the battle. What is the battle? To risk unpopularity by preaching the cross as a real cross on which a real saviour shed real blood for real sinners headed for a real hell. The battle is giving up pretense that we're all nice people. 
The battle is taking the gospel to the lost with radical devotion. The battle is to own nothing in order that we might own Christ. The battle is to have no righteousness except the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. The battle is to attack the dark places of the earth with all the energy of the Spirit and the conquering gospel of the substitutionary death of Christ. And he finishes one bit of this little uh, essay, quoting a magnificent book, John Stott's Cross of Christ, and how as we think about the cross, what does that mean for our mission? And he quotes Stott, the place of suffering in service and passion in mission is hardly ever taught today. But the greatest single secret of evangelism or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. So we must love our brothers and sisters in need. We must embrace vulnerability for the sake of evangelism. And thirdly, if you are a Christian and you are treated with disdain by the world who says to you, you're on the wrong side of history for your scriptural views which clash with our cultural moments. Don't give up. Don't give in. One day, you will be on the right side of history. The world around you, our media, social media, everything will say, you should give up those views now. We've got past those views now. We're modern and tolerant, as if they know what the right side of history is. Keep going. Keep being willing to take disgrace for the sake of Christ. Because at the end of history, Jesus will decide who was on the right side of history. So count it a privilege to suffer disgrace for the name of Christ as you share the gospel. One final application. If you're here today and you've never named Jesus as your king, you've never given up that place of you being the king of your life who dictates what happens. Why not give in today? Give him a place in your life as king, in charge of all. Surrender. Give up. Lay down your arms and pretense. Receive the gospel message that you're a sinner saved by grace and can be guaranteed eternal life. And receive us, not as people who are nice, but as brothers and sisters with whom Christ is hiding right now. And if you're not sure, why not? What else do you want Jesus to do for you? Who else do you want him to be? What message could be clearer for you than today? Give in. Come and speak to us at the end. We'd love to pray for you. So the, judge, the judgment scene should disturb the comfortable who've rejected the message and therefore rejected the church. In rejecting those two things, they've rejected the king. And Judgment Day will be terrifying. But if you represent Christ and suffer vulnerability, persecution, disdain, you make sacrifices and challenges and there's hardships and there's cost because you really hold on to this gospel message and you long that others would hold on to it too, there is great comfort. You're on the right side of history. Jesus attaches his name to you as you endeavor to share the gospel. Be strengthened to the end. Let's pray and we'll invite the band back. Let's take a moment just to be quiet. This is a hard, hard parable, but we must listen to it. Take a moment, maybe close your eyes, just to allow that to sink. It's not easy stuff.
Lord, it's been said many times that the loving thing so often to do is to warn people. And the unloving thing is to let people live in ignorance and harm themselves. And so, Lord, we take this parable of yours, so striking, so strong, so dramatic, as a loving warning to help us to think about eternal realities and the ultimate distinction that matters. For those here, Lord, that are struggling to hold on to you, may this message encourage them to do so and accept all the vulnerabilities that come from holding on to you and any rejection that they face in doing so. I pray for any here today, Lord, that don't know you, draw them today to say yes to you fully, finally, and put themselves among the sheep through faith in Christ. And for all of us, Lord, may we receive again this message that you didn't come here just to make our lives a bit easier and nicer and to meet our felt needs, though those things are all important to you. You came as the king and you're now commissioning us as ambassadors. And may we accept a life of vulnerability and suffering and sacrifice that we might win the nations as your inheritance. We pray that in your name. Amen. Amen.